In the sixth season of Spun Stories podcast, you're going to be wandering through the backyards of seven very different people who call the top end of Australia home. From a doctor to a dominatrix to one of the territory's most respected and iconic sports broadcasters, this season will definitely bust some stereotypes about our tropical town. My name's Jess Ong, and Spun Stories is a live storytelling night based in Darwin, the capital of the Northern Territory. You probably know of Darwin thanks to the NT News, or maybe because of the crocodiles and cyclones that tend to go hand in hand with living here. I grew up in Darwin, but I did the dash as soon as I could, and I had no intention of returning ever again. But after 10 years, I suddenly found myself back, and I really wasn't happy. But I realised gradually, over time, that this place, one that I'd put so much distance between, was actually where I needed to be. And once I'd accepted this, Darwin began to come alive. The dry season set in, which meant camping came along... The rattling electrical storms soon showed up, along with bright sunsets. It doesn't take long to come across the special, self-deprecating, talented and adventurous characters who call this place home, each of them carrying a tight thread through this community's tapestry. And while the NT can be transient, when you leave, you often find yourself wandering back. There's something about this place that makes life feel possible, like you're teetering on the edge of something big. The Larrakia are the traditional custodians of the Darwin region, and we've entered Mayalma. This is when the knock down rains arrive on the calendar of the Larrakia. The flowering of the speargrass signifies it's time to start collecting the eggs of the magpie goose. And once the knock down storms arrive, to literally knock down the spear grass. This marks the end of the wet season. But the thing is, we haven't had much rain. We're on track for this to be one of the driest wet seasons on record. So it's been quite a sweaty slog. But with that, let's dive into the sixth season of Spun Stories podcast. Before I go any further, a content warning for this story. It contains references to suicide, which may cause distress. So if you're in need of assistance, please call Lifeline. Bridget Judd lives in a world of language. As a journalist, her public role is to survey the events of our world, giving them shape and meaning through words. But when her beloved father took his own life, Bridget found herself in silence surrounded by a community, afraid to talk about what had happened. And for once, Bridget was unable to find the words. The 28th of May is still a bit of a blur, uh, but I remember standing in the kitchen stark naked, I was about to jump in the shower when the phone rang and uh, usually I'd ignore it, but there was just something about this night that made me go downstairs and answer the call. It was my mum ringing from our childhood home in the Gold Coast and as soon as she said my name, I just knew that whatever she was about to say next, it wasn't going to be good. She kept saying that she couldn't break the car window, that no matter how hard she tried 
or how many times she beat against the glass. She just could not break the car window to get to my dad. I remember falling to the floor when she told me that the police had arrived. And I remember begging her to stay on the phone. I didn't know what to say. I just wanted to know that she was there at the other end. I called my partner and told her she'd have to leave work. And then I texted my boss. I'd quit smoking, but suddenly I set myself this personal challenge of going out and finding the cheapest, nastiest pack of durries that money could buy. And I washed them down with a couple of sleeping pills on the way to the airport. I was out cold by the time the plane left Darwin and I didn't wake up until we landed in Brisbane. My mum and brother picked me up from the airport in a hire car and it wasn't until we pulled into Watford Crescent that I saw that car with the broken window for the first time, just parked in the driveway like Dad had knocked off work. When I walked through the doors of my childhood home, I was immediately greeted to the smell of grief. And by that, I mean lasagna. <laughs> it hadn't even been 24 hours, but already people were making the rounds with the home-cooked meals. I'm sorry about your dad. Here's a lasagna. <laughs> After a while, you start ranking your friends and family based on the quality of their food. <laughs> it becomes this morbid game of MasterChef where you weigh up the cheese-to-sympathy ratio of each meal. <laughs> Someone brought around a packet of Tim Tams, and I thought... My dad's dead, Karen. You can do better. For the most of that morning, people filtered in and out of the house and I just sat on the couch underneath the pergola, completely paralysed. I decided I had to get out of there and so I was going to go for a run. I went to the wardrobe looking for something to wear, but the only thing that I could find was this horrific, dirty, oversized tracksuit. I paired it with a pair of my mum's jazziest sneakers. And I set off down the hill from my house looking like a speed dealer trying to outrun the dog squad. <laughs> and that's one of the funniest things to reflect on when I look back at that first week. I was so worried about keeping up appearances. And I'm not sure who I was trying to keep them up for. But I remember in that moment when I was running, thinking to myself, you know, I really could try, try to find a nicer outfit. But I was determined, you know, in that moment, I was Forrest Gump. I started running and I did not stop. I had a playlist of all my dad's music. I listened to Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison on repeat because he used to sing it to me when I was a kid. I was his brown eyed girl. I ran through parks and abandoned lots like Kathy Freeman's much fatter, much whiter cousin. <laughs> I ran down highways and side streets and I didn't know where I was going. I just knew that wherever that was, I was going to get there quickly. And I'm not sure if I was running from the crying rallies back home or the sympathy lasagnas or just the realisation that my dad, my funny, quirky, soft-spoken father, had really killed himself in the driveway of our family home. My dad's solution to life's problems was... A milkshake. Whenever I'd have a problem, he'd say, well, Poppet, can't change the world, but I can make you a milkshake. My dad was calm and collected. Uh, he was the same man who stopped my mum from going postal when I came home with a tattoo on my thigh that may or may not have been a bit bigger than what I'd promised. <laughs> Family was everything to him. He was the same man who checked my ABC profile on the morning that he took his own life just to see if I'd written any new stories. 
because right until the very end, all he ever wanted to be was a good dad. A couple of days after he passed, I went and saw a psychologist and I remember walking into his office and saying, what's wrong with me, Graham? Am I some kind of sociopath? Why can't I grieve properly? And he said, you're not a sociopath, you're a gardener. He said, there's two types of people who grieve and both think the other is grieving incorrectly. The first group of people, they'll wear nothing but black and they'll cry for two years straight. And that's their process. That's their way of saying to this person who's passed, we will never forget you. And then there's this second group of people. They don't wear black, they don't cry, and their lives continue on pretty much the same. But every morning they'll get up and they'll water a tree that they planted in their loved one's honour. So he said, you just need to find your tree. And I thought, well, that's all well and good, Graham but I don't own a tree. I live in an apartment. I don't have a backyard. How do you propose I get a tree? And he said, it's a metaphor, mate. (laughs) Try not to overthink it. And that stuck with me. So about a week or two after Dad passed, uh, I decided I was going to compete in a race. Running was the only thing that made sense to me. So I decided I was going to do the 10-kilometre bridge to Brisbane. I was going to raise money for Beyond Blue. Uh, and I was going to tell people what happened. I was going to come clean about my dad and that was going to be my first tree. And I'd love to sit here and say I decided to do that because I'm a very selfless person, Uh, but the reality is it was completely self-serving. Running for a cause was a way of legitimising my tree. It was the only way that I could think of where I could legitimise my pain and my grief so that I could even give myself permission to talk about it. Because you can't just tell people that your dad killed himself. You know, how do I tell you that it took my dad 56 years to make a life and only 15 minutes to decide that he was going to end it? How do I tell you that I cry for him every day and I wonder if there will come a time where I forget the sound of his voice? How do I tell you that I had to stand by that car with the broken window? and look in the back seat where he put on a David Bowie CD and he curled up in a blanket and he ended his life to realise that that was my dad. That was the same man that I knew, but he was just a man. He wasn't the dork with a cheeky grin and a cup of tea for mum anymore. He was just a man with a David Bowie CD and a lifetime of sadness that he thought he couldn't tell us about. You can't tell people that shit, it's uncomfortable. You know, it puts a lot of pressure on people to try and find an appropriate way to respond. But running, you know, I thought that's a narrative that people can get behind. Because then you're not just the sad girl talking about her dead dad. Then you're a bloody inspiration, you know? You're running for a cause. You're not gonna let your sadness get the best of you. You're doing something about it. My whole job as a journalist, is to try and give the world shape through words, but for the first time in my life, I didn't have any. And so I approached my dad's death like I would a story at work. I shaped a narrative that I thought would be easy to digest. And I went through and I edited and I sub-edited my grief so that I didn't make people too uncomfortable. I didn't want to come across as too sad. And even when my world was falling apart around me, I was more concerned with making my grief stomachable for other people 
than being able to say, I'm struggling and I don't know that I'm going to be okay. But then something changed because as soon as I started talking, people started talking back. The language of loss was universal, but I had to give myself permission to speak about it before I could give other people the permission to respond. And they did. You know, people reached out to me to tell me about their own struggles with depression and anxiety. People contacted me to say, you know what, I'm, I'm fine, but I don't know that my brother is, so I'm going to give him a call tonight and I'm going to do that in your dad's honour. And now I find myself having these conversations with people that I wish I could have had with my dad. Because I would do anything to have one last conversation with him. I would give the world to tell him how much I loved him and how much he had to live for. How every time I see a father with his daughter, I feel like I've been hit by a freight train. I'd do anything to drink one last dodgy milkshake with the egg that was never mixed properly or to have him measure my ear-to-eye ratio because he thought it was a measure of low IQ. <laughs> but I can't. All I can do now is water my tree. So on August 26, just short of three months since my dad passed, I'm going to run my 10-kilometre race. And I know that my dad will be there with me every step of the way, singing along to Van Morrison off-key. And I know that with every step that I run, I can only become more powerful because through struggle comes strength. And I feel like the biggest wanker saying that out loud, but it's true. <laughs> through struggle comes strength. With every step that I run, my muscles break down, but they come back bigger and better and stronger than before. And I think if my body can do that, then why can't my mind? I didn't choose this situation, but I can choose how I respond. So I'm going to run my stupid, stupid race. And I'm probably going to cross the finish line and come to the realisation that I still feel just as shitty as I do now. But that's okay, because then I'll plant my next tree. And I don't know what that's going to be yet, but I know I'm going to end up with a backyard full of them. And they're going to be so big and so strong that the neighbours are going to have to go and get the council involved. <laughs> And I know that over time, as the months and the years pass, there will come a point where I don't have to plant any more trees. And when that time comes, I'll just sit in my backyard and I'll look out at them all and I'll marvel at what I've created. And I'll think to myself, fuck, what a weird and wonderful life it has been. And I'm going to do that for my dad. Bridget did run and finish that race, and she's added a few others to her backyard of trees since then. Bridget shared her story at our event at Darwin Festival in 2018, where the theme was power. If listening to this story has caused distress, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This episode came together thanks to the magic hands of many. Sam Carmody produced Bridget's story and he also composed the music that features in our podcast. Sound editing was by Ryan MacArthur and sound production by Gaya Osborne. Spun Stories is one of the projects that comes out of the Creative Production House Story Projects and we receive funding support for our podcast from Darwin International Airport. At Spun, we acknowledge and are grateful to our first storytellers, the Larrakia people the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather to connect through story. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening. <laughs>